or an impact of computerized technology. The paradox of technology is that it opens the door to abundance, but then closes it for many by depriving them of the means to enjoy it. To illustrate this, consider the graph that I've circulated. I'm sorry, not everyone has got got one. But um, it, 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 it simply shows the divergence, growing divergence, between mean and median incomes. I mean, before, before I started writing um, my bit of the book, I sort of probably knew what, you know, I knew what the difference was, but it, it, it wasn't something I thought about a lot. But since I've been um, uh, 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 thinking about this subject, it seems to me absolutely central to the whole discussion that everyone has a very clear idea of what the difference is, because we constantly talk about averages and, 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 and deduce certain things from average data, where it's the distribution that's so important. I mean, um, consider a factory of 10 people in which nine earn 1,000 pounds and the 10th and the earns 10,000 pounds. The mean or average income, average income of the factory staff is 1,900 a year, but the median income is 1,000. And so, um, the, the, in other words, growth of per capita income is not enough to explain the hours people work. We need to know what the distribution of income is. And the fact, I think, is that technological progress destroys the incomes of some, even as it enhances the incomes of others. And the question is, which effect is bigger? The enhancement or, 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 the, or, the, um, uh, or, or the destruction? Now, until recently, and despite the desperate arguments of the Luddites, um, the enhancement was greater than the destruction. Throughout the industrial age, and despite the increase in population, labor's share of GDP remained roughly constant. In cheapening the cost of production, machines increased the real incomes of the population, enabling them to buy more and, and, and more varied uh, amount of goods, thus opening up additional, additional sources of jobs and so on. And then with the, with the rise of labor productivity, uh, employers could afford or be made by the unions to pay more per worker. There was temporary displacements, but they were, they were regarded purely as transitional phenomena. However, in the last 30 years, things have changed. The flattening of the hours of work, which I've just mentioned, coincides with a fall in the share of wages in national income. Um, and the economists Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee attribute the falling wage share primarily to the accelerated technical change brought about by digitalized computer. computer. They call it the second machine age. And the, the speed up of technical progress, they argue, has elevated cap the rewards to capital and depressed those to labor. Their argument is very simple. Digital technology is doing for mental power what the steam engine did for muscular power. The exponential increase in digital computer, computing power, known as Moore's Law, has enabled robotics to penetrate deeply into the service and caring sectors, taking over jobs for which cognitive functions were hitherto deemed indispensable. Since computer programs and humans are close substitutes for many service jobs, 
there seems no technical obstacle, given the predictable improvement in computing power to the eventual redundancy of workers across much of the service sector. The first symptom of this redundancy is the widening gap between median, uh, mean and median incomes. For example, until fairly recently, Kodak employed 145,000 people and many more in the supply chain, providing the middle classes with jobs for, genera for generations. In 2003, Kodak applied for bankruptcy. Instagram, the new face of digital photography, had only 13 employees when it, purchased, when it, when it, when it was purchased by Facebook. Um, in 2012. Of course, Facebook expanded, but it still only employs 6,000. Now, uh, a similar decimation of jobs, you can, you can document this, has, is taking place in much of the media, finance and publishing, retailing, distribution, manufacturing, and so on. What happens to the people made redundant? Um, the answer, surely, is that they crowd into the less digital, less productive sectors of, of, the, of the economy where their competition forces down wages. Partly computerized retail chains like Walmart and Amazon still employ thousands of workers, but middle management has gone, and most of the workers are on minimum wages. Now, there's a further consequence. Inequality of incomes up to a point, is, is perfectly compatible with continued growth in average GDP, that is GDP per person. But if the inequality becomes too extreme, total consumption, and with it, average GDP, average GDP per capita starts to fall, it will be kept up for a while by increases in household debt. But in the end, households will run out of collateral. Virtue will be reclaimed, in other words, not by a change of values, but by enforced abstinence. So the moral question is, is really enters the, enters the argument in two places. Um, uh, first, in the critique of consumerism, which we made in the name of the good life, and secondly, in the critique of inequality in the name of a justice and distribution. Growing inequality arising from um, the second machine age has probably more to do with people's trade-offs between work and leisure than we allowed in our book. Now, I just want to end um, by saying that if, you know, this is the situation that we confront, what, what sort of, how are we to think about doing something about it? And there are basically six possible policies, and I just list them summarily, because they uh, don't all aim to achieve the same thing. First, improve human capital through education. That's, that's favoured by most economists, businessmen, and politicians. And this, uh, as, as the phrase is, may enable people to race with machines rather than race against them. Um, when computer chess was first developed, no one thought a computer would be able to beat the best human chess players. And in 1997, a computer beat Gary Kasparov, who was then world champion. They thought, well, that's the end of the human race. But then it was found out that computers plus humans did better than computers on their own. So, computers, so humans still added some value um, to, to the game of chess. And uh, that is, uh, they, 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 they added ideas, basically, which computers couldn't think of. Well, all that's very, very interesting. Um, and, um, however, uh, I'm not convinced that this program for turning humans into computer geeks offers a convincing barrier to the downward pressure on real earnings. 
I don't think I don't think um, there are enough um, of the, the kind of jobs that geeks uh, can do uh, that will be left. Uh, and, and secondly, um, there's no evidence that the human brain can be made to double in efficiency every two years, which is uh, what, uh, what is claimed for computers. A second policy is to reduce unemployment and other benefits so as to keep the, the, the benefit levels below the falling market-clearing wage levels. And, and the aim, therefore, obviously, is to give people a continuing incentive to work. Um, but for a time, at least, it may be able to keep the price of human labour below the price of machines. And of course, this um, approach is favoured by right-wing economists uh, and is reflected in current efforts to reduce benefits. And now, um, no government would dare to carry it to extreme lengths. Um, and anyway, the price of labour can't fall below zero. Uh, third, aim to slow down computerisation of work by taxing it. Um, I think that's quite interesting. Payroll taxes could be levied uh, on both computers and humans with a rebate for the employment of humans. <laughs> Conceptually, the, the, the policy of taxing robots makes sense if your aim is to slow down the pace of technological change in order to give humans more time to adapt. A fourth policy, extend uh, and increase wage subsidies to offset earnings, earnings from wage labour. This is already happening in most rich countries for various types of in-work benefits. You, know, you can extend that. I, I think that's an inferior, inferior to, 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 to my uh, uh, third policy. Another would be to raise minimum wage rates. Uh, this puts a limit to the downward fall in wages, especially of unskilled labour, but because it's a tax on employment, it may encourage employers to replace workers by machines. And the sixth policy, the one we really came to in our book by a different, slightly different route, um, was um, to give everyone a basic income, independent of the labour market, which would, in order to improve their work-leisure trade-off. And uh, one way of doing this, I think an interesting, I think it's quite a good way, is to secure wider distribution of capital assets through a national mutual fund which provides a dividend stream to all citizens. The fund could be capitalised through payroll taxes, inheritance <coughs> taxes, income <coughs> taxes, and a progressive, a progressive consumption tax, and would then grow automatically with, 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 with national income. Now, if we accept, A, that the computerisation of paid work will continue and accelerate, B, that the creation of new wants however relentlessly pursued through advertising, will not create enough good jobs to replace those lots, and C, reject a society divided between an oligarchic and a helot class. Then we need to take steps to build a future in which leisure will occupy an increasing fraction of our waking lives. And this means we should take education for leisure seriously and try to overcome the fear of leisure by distinguishing it from idleness. And that's a crucial distinction to make because with idleness goes dissipation, poverty and all kinds of dreadful vices. Leisure is not that. People have to become less afraid of working less becoming bored, having fewer gadgets. Um, we need to make the argument that what Tom Paine called the abridgment of labour will open up new possibilities for an active leisure. Our book, How Much Is Enough, was an attempt to present just such a picture of an active leisure for the majority, backed by proposals to make it possible. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Um, so I, I want to take up the question of leisure, which um, Robert has just touched on, because it was central to our book and the focus of many criticisms. So if work really is on the way out, as Robert has suggested it is, the question arises, what will we do with our leisure? Will we be capable of making good use of it? Or will we rather find ourselves in the position of those wives of the well-to-do classes described by Keynes, unfortunate women, many of them, who have been deprived by their wealth of their traditional tasks and occupations, yet are quite unable to find anything more amusing? Many of our critics found our vision of a leisured future blithely over-optimistic. We had ignored the way in which work gives meaning to people's lives, or at any rate, saves them from the tedium of endless sloth. And one version of this objection was put forward by our Telegraph reviewer, Alistair Palmer. The Skidelskis, he said, have nothing substantial to say about boredom, and it is why their analysis is doomed from the start. The reason why most people keep striving long after they have satisfied all their elementary needs is not, as the Skidelskis claim, that they mistakenly think that money is the ultimate value, it is simply that striving for it keeps boredom at bay. Boredom is the serpent in the Skidelsky's garden of idle delights, and you can be sure that were we to ever achieve it, that serpent would soon eject us again. This criticism overlooks the distinction which we <coughs> just mentioned, and which we draw in our book, between leisure and idleness. Leisure, as we define it, is not a state of passive relaxation. Uh, it is a form of activity, activity undertaken for its own sake, and not for the sake of some external end. And this is roughly the meaning of the ancient Greek um, schole and the Latin otium, the ancestors of our modern concept of leisure. Leisure in this sense can be as strenuous as you please. It can even take the form of paid work, so long as pay is not the primary motivation. And there's no reason to think that leisure in this sense leads inevitably to boredom. On the contrary, it looks like the best remedy against boredom. But even if leisure in this sense is a valid category, there remains the empirical question of our aptitude for it. If hours of work are greatly reduced, will we be able to occupy the vacant hours in intrinsically meaningful activity? Will we not rather descend into alcoholism and neurosis, like Keynes's bored housewives? <coughs> It's hard to know how to answer this question. The historical record is mixed. Many leisure classes have behaved rather like Keynes's household. <coughs> Think of all those 19th century Russian aristocrats depicted in novels by Lermontov and Goncharov and Tolstoy and others. But history offers other more hopeful precedents. Jane Austen's gentlefolk do little in the way of economically productive activity, but they are not on the whole idle or dissolute. They read novels, play the piano, organise dances and amateur theatricals. They are not overcome by ennui or weltschmerz. They lead a good life, on the whole. Whether their example can be successfully universalised is, of course, another question. But it seemed to us unduly pessimistic to assume in advance that it cannot. A more complex version of this objection was put forward by Richard Posner in his New York Times review of our book. He writes, the Skidelskis are correct that because goods and services can be produced with much less labour than in 1930, we could live now as we did then while working many fewer hours. We want to live better than that. 
And what would we do with our newfound leisure? Most people would quickly get bored without the resources for varied and exciting leisure activities like foreign travel, movies and television, casinos, restaurants, watching sporting events, uh, engaging in challenging athletic activities, playing video games, eating out, dieting, having cosmetic surgery and improving health and longevity. But with everyone working just 20 hours a week, few of these opportunities would materialise because people who work so little would be unable to afford them. So Posner's point here is not that leisure is boring in and of itself, but that it's liable to become boring unless enhanced with consumption goods. And this limits the degree to which expand. it can expand, because clearly consumption goods are only available to those who work hard enough to afford them. <coughs> the argument here draws on the work of a Swedish economist, Stefan Linder, who in an interesting book of 1970, The Harried Leisure Class, observed that leisure is not only a benefit, but also a cost, the cost of not working. And this cost rises together with the productivity of work. Um, to hold its own against work, leisure must also become more productive, which means more filled with expensive, gadget-packed activity. Thus, the increase in productivity that Keynes thought would liberate us for leisure has had the paradoxical effect of chaining us ever more tightly to the work-spend treadmill. This is a powerful argument, but it rests, note, on a picture of man as a rational maximizer, not just in the sphere of work, but in all spheres of life. Keynes would, rightly, I think, have rejected this picture. He would have retorted that leisure, in the true sense, is not subject to the calculus of costs and benefits. The lilies of the field who toil not, neither do they spin, are not weighing the benefits of leisure against the costs of not working at the margin. The extension of the maximising attitude proper to work into other spheres of life is an unfortunate accident of recent history. It's not implicit in the logic of rational choice, as Posner, Lindo, and Gary Becker would have it. <coughs> Richard Posner also criticised our concept of leisure for being overly optimistic. Leisure, as we define it, is intrinsically motivated activity and so might include many activities normally classified as work, provided they are engaged in for their own sake and not for the sake of money. As we put it, the sculptor engrossed in cutting marble, the teacher intent on imparting a difficult idea, the musician struggling with a score, a scientist exploring the mysteries of space and time, such people have no other aim than to do what they are doing well. They may receive an income for their efforts, but that income is not what motivates them. In our terms, they engaged in leisure, not toil. <coughs> Posner disagrees. Most of these people are ambitious achievers who seek recognition, he writes. <coughs> and he has a point, which I think we overlooked. The desire for recognition, or honour, to use the old term, is indeed vital to many professional activities. But is it intrinsic or extrinsic in relation to the activities themselves? The answer is not straightforward. Presumably one can want to do something well without wanting to be recognised for doing it well. Although this lofty state of mind is, I think, rather rare. But one cannot, as a matter of logic, want to be recognised for doing something well without also wanting to do it well. 
So honour is not entirely extrinsic in relation to the activities for which it is conferred. And in this respect, it's distinct from money, which is entirely extrinsic. I mean, its value is strictly independent of the means by which it's obtained. Hence, honour can be tainted. Money can't. Pecunia non olet. Money doesn't stink. Old Latin tag. And this difference can be brought out by thinking about cheating. Um, a sportsman hungry for honour cannot logically achieve his goal by cheating. Because even if he's never found out, he hasn't won honour, but only the appearance of honour. For honour is recognition precisely of success, which is lacking here. But a sportsman only interested in material gain, in the prize money, say, might well be tempted to cheat if he thinks he can get away with it. <coughs> in other words, the motive of honour, even if not fully intrinsic, complements intrinsic motivation, whereas the money motive can, on the contrary, corrupt or crowd out intrinsic motivation. And I think this is what Aristotle was getting at when he called <coughs> greatness of soul, or the desire for supreme honour, a sort of adornment, as it were, of the excellences, for it augments them and does not occur without them. If, as we hope, the money motive comes to play a decreasingly uh, important role in human affairs, the motive of honour may revive to fill the gap. And perhaps we can see something of this already in the proliferation of sporting and literary prizes. This carries its dangers, of course. Honour is strictly positional. Hence, the pursuit of honour, unlike the pursuit of wealth, is a zero-sum game. One competitor's gain is, another is another's loss. And this is one of the main reasons why the honour motive came under such suspicion in the 17th and 18th centuries. <coughs> but zero-sum games could be played for higher or lower stakes. Losers needn't always lose their heads. And anyway, insofar as most people care more about relative than absolute wealth, economic competition is already substantially a competition for honour. Okay, this was the point famously made by Horstein Veblen. So why not pursue honour openly, rather than under the hypocritical disguise of money, as we do at present? Another important criticism was made by Lord Glassman in a LSE debate with Robert. Uh, he pointed out that an increasing number of people in the affluent world teachers, social workers, charitable workers, are engaged in activity whose primary motive is neither gain nor self-expression, but a felt obligation to give something back to society. These activities don't fit comfortably into our work-leisure schema. Insofar as they are an important source of purpose and self-respect, they are not just means to an end. Yet neither are they quite ends in themselves, in the sense that making music or playing chess are. They have a purpose, serving the needs of other people, which they can fulfil more or less adequately. They are subject to the dictates of efficiency. And they are not typically <coughs> enjoyable, at least not hour by hour, although they might be a source of lasting satisfaction. All this needs more thought. Our division of all human motives into extrinsic and intrinsic was a simplifying device. It was adequate enough for its role in the argument of the book, although it really doesn't cover all cases. And perhaps we were overly impressed by the 
ancient Greek image of the leisured gentleman as an end in himself, and under-impressed by the biblical concept of service, which clearly lies in the background of Glassman's remarks. Anyway, this is something I hope we can debate over the course of the day. So, now we come to the, the first uh, uh, set of our responses. Um, and uh, uh, the first... Uh, f- first of all, I should explain the programme has been divided into, into topics. Um, uh, there will, of course, be um, um, overlap between the various sessions, but our, our first focus is on the themes of work, happiness, and the good life in a liberal society. Um, and we have to address... I'll speak to that topic. Um, first of all, uh, Cecile Fabre, uh, a colleague in the uh, Department of Philosophy here at Oxford, an author of, among other things, Social Rights Under the Constitution, Government and the Decent Life. So Cecile will speak first. And then following her is um, uh, Dr. John Hughes, Dean of Chapel and Fellow of Jesus College, Cambridge, and author of The Ends of Work, Theological Critiques of Capitalism. So please... Uh, uh, welcome both Cecile and John. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you very much, Nigel, for inviting me to um, take part in this uh, very interesting conference about a very interesting book. Um, so, before I launch into um, some of my criticisms of the book, I just want to say by way of prefatory remarks that um, there is quite a lot, an enormous amount of, you know, in the book to, uh, to admire. Um, in particular, what I thought was a really incisive and clear sighted, you know, criticism of contemporary uh, economics and policy making. Uh, particularly, I, I thought that um, the criticism of the focus on economic growth, you know, without attending to the question of what is growth for was very interesting. Um, I also really enjoyed the, um, uh, the criticism that you deplore uh, of a state of affairs where individuals strive for money in the pursuit of satisfying wants which by their very nature are insatiable without attending to the question of whether we should really continue to strive to satisfy those wants, which we should know, really, we will never be able to satisfy, without attending to the question, more precisely, of whether those wants and preferences really are part and parcel of a good life. And finally, and I should put my cards on the table, I am exactly, if you've read the book, you would have seen that there is a long argument particularly in the latter chapters, against contemporary liberalism. So I'm going to put my cards on the table very openly. Um, I am one of your targets. Um, Not explicitly. I don't mean to imply that you do mention explicitly. You don't. But I do belong to that fairly broad church of contemporary liberals um, about whom we have a number of incisive things to say. I do belong to that broad church. I do, however, believe that your willingness to try and provide an account of the good life and, moreover, an objective account of the good life is quite admirable you know, in the current climate. And by objective, I mean, and you mean, that what is a good life is not solely down to what we prefer to what we want. It's not solely down to our subjective states of mind. I actually do agree with you, you know, about this, 
And so you might wonder now, well, what is, the, what is she going to say that is critical of the book? Well, I do have two worries you know, about the book, um, which, of course, you know, may flow from uh, mistakes on my part as to what the book really is trying to say. Um, so we'll discuss that you know, later. But the worries really can be phrased you know, as follows. Now, it seems to me that when one writes a book which is both critical of contemporary public policy and makes recommendations as to how we should govern ourselves, and when one writes such a book bearing in mind or rather articulating a conception of the good life, one has to be quite clear as to the role that this conception of the good life will play when justifying or, on the contrary, opposing certain ways in which the state organises its public economic policy. And this really is the location of my worry. So on one reading of your book, your conception of the good life is really not one which your liberal targets will have much to disagree with. And on that reading of the book, your policy recommendations are not that different from what Rawls, Sen, Nussbaum you know, will advocate. On another reading of the book, you do have indeed important disagreements with your liberal targets, but those disagreements worry me insofar as on that reading, that alternative reading of the book, your policy recommendations will leave disadvantaged groups even more vulnerable you know, than they are. So let me flesh out you know, those two concerns a bit more fully. And so I begin with the first reading of the book where really... As a liberal, I wasn't on the whole that uncomfortable at all with much of what you said. Maybe you think it's a good thing, or maybe you should be worried about that, I don't know. Uh, so why, why did I not find much to disagree with? Um, now, you use the good life, that phrase, a lot, which when I started reading the book led me to think that you would be extremely prescriptive as to what is the good life. To my relief, however, I have to say, I didn't find you to be so prescriptive. On your view, my life is good if and only if I have health and security. That's fairly straightforward. I am treated with respect. That's fairly straightforward too. I have friendships in my life, widely construed, and I like that part of the book, by the way, where friendship for you is a set of emotionally rewarding relationships, be they friendships in the ordinary sense of the word, but you know, be they partnership, be they relationships with our children. That's an essential component of a good life. My life is good if, in addition to all of that, I have what you call personality, what liberals will call autonomy. That is to say, there is a sense in which I decide reflectively how to interpret those various goods which I have just listed. And finally, if I have leisure, time to enjoy the things that I would like to do. By the way, I should say that I consider academic work clearly as leisure in the technical sense that you use, but when I do mark my students' essays, I can guarantee you that I regard myself as working in a pretty family, and there are some of my students from the students in the room, so you know, please forgive me for making the point you know, so clearly. Uh, now, it's, I think it's an it's a enormous strength, actually, of your conception of the good life that it should be so ecumenical. Take 
leisure, you know, for example. You are very clear that if someone decides that for them to enjoy leisure is to go to the opera, it's as worthwhile as a conception of leisure as held by another person where that other person really enjoys purposefully playing football. You are very clear, to go back to the example of friendship, that someone who conceives of emotionally rewarding relationships as primarily relationships with friends or primarily with children or primarily with a sexual partner, you know, we cannot bear a judgment, a relative judgment on whether or not one conception of friendship is better than another. And I think it is a strength of you know, your conception of the good life to be ecumenical. You know, in that way. For on that conception, the footballer is not told, you should go to the opera. Your life would be better if you went to the opera. On that conception, the deliberately childless person is not told, you've got it wrong. You really should have children. Your life would be better if you had children. But of course, as soon as you adopt as broad-minded a stand as you do, on what will make life good for people, then you are vulnerable to the charge that your contemporary liberal targets will entirely agree with you. I do not, cannot imagine that Amartya Sen, Martin Nussbaum, Jean Rawls would disagree with you, you know, on those counts. I mean, the capabilities approach, without wanting to be a bit too technical here, but the capabilities approach articulated by Sen and Nussbaum in particular, is very consonant with your own broad-minded ecumenical you know, understanding of the good life. I suspect that you're going to reject what I've just said here as follows. In fact, you do have a line in the book where you say, well, no, there is a difference actually between what liberals say and what we say, which is that for liberals, autonomy or personality, as you call it, is the overarching value. And you have that very interesting line, which unfortunately you didn't expand upon, where you say something like, we would hope that love could be sacrificed to personality or to an autonomy without there being a loss to the quality of the life of that particular inner person. And I wish you had said something more you know, about that. Um, because it seems to me that however true it may be that a life led in love and in abdication at the same time of personality could be a good life only if that choice, as it were, were really a genuine choice. So let me you know, give you an example. I don't know what you had in mind, you know, particularly by a life of love which doesn't have personality, but let me venture or offer the example of someone who decides to enter religious orders. Now, I will concede as a liberal, that some of my liberal friends would find it very difficult you know, to think of this as a good life. I disagree. Um, I think there is a sense in which that life is indeed a good life. There is an enormous abdication of personal autonomy you know, in that life. But I hope that in the light of your remarks on agency and self-respect, you will concede to me that a life so lived can be a good life only if that person has not been beaten into entering a religious order, hasn't been coerced by, for example, extreme poverty you know, to do so. 
So if you are willing to concede that there is a sense in which whatever choice we make as to how we order those various components of the good life, there is a sense in which it has to be our choice, at least at one point in the process, then it's very unclear to me what, in your book, people like Rawls, Sen, Nussbaum, you know, would reject. And in fact, to buttress this particular point, policy-wise, you would not, I believe endorse state coercion for the sake of getting people to have a good life. Not just because, as you note in the book, it's a self-defeating in a process, but because it violates the good of personality and autonomy. So that's my first reading of the book, that I don't quite see really what the salient difference is you know, between what you say in the book and what non-fanatic, reasonable you know, liberals would have to say. But perhaps I got it completely wrong. Perhaps we should read your book in a different way. And here is the alternative reading. Now, you have a very strong commitment to what you call personality. And I think that commitment should lead you to reject paternalistic interference in people's life, but at the same time you are, and this is what worries me the most actually, you are very committed to a particular form of cultural pluralism. Now, that commitment to cultural pluralism will in fact allow for interference in people's life on the part of the state in the name of a particular conception of the good life at the cost of the good of personality. Why? Your account of the good life, I said earlier, is very ecumenical. And I gave two examples, the example of leisure, but I think more you know, importantly in this particular context, the importance of the good of friendship. Friendship, you recall, can be interpreted extremely widely. At the same time, in articulating your commitment to cultural pluralism, you say very clearly that non-Western cultures should not really feel obliged to grant the opportunity to marry to gay people. You want to say something like this, unless I really misunderstood you. There are very different ways of understanding the good of marriage, the good of friendship in general, the good of marriage in particular. And we should not you know, impress upon non-Western cultures the fact that the conception of marriage with which we are working at the moment or towards which we are in a movie whereby marriage should be open to all irrespective of sexual orientations, we shouldn't impress on other cultures that this is the only way you know, to conceive you know, of marriage. Now, you know, here's the worry that by that token you allow cultures to impress a particular conception of the good on their members as follows. You allow cultures to say we don't need to allow you, gay people, to marry because you can enjoy the good of friendship, but in a very different way. You, know, you can marry non-gay people. You don't have to marry at all. So why is it so important? Given that you can enjoy the broad good of friendship and that you can have a good life, why should we feel compelled to extend that protection you know, to you? Um, and you know, we could run you know, similar you know, examples you know, along those lines. For example, you can allow your view or your, your deference at times to cultural pluralism you know, will enable a state shaped by particular cultural norms to say to a woman, well, you can have a good life 
you know, by having children and by nurturing you know, your family, that will fall under the heading of friendship. It could also fall under the heading of leisure, you know, particularly construed. You don't have you know, to have the opportunity to pursue the line of work you want. Because, look, we're telling you, you know, we have a particular understanding of leisure, friendship, and so on. That can give you a good life. Why should we worry? about extending you know, the range of opportunities which are available you know, to you. Now, of course, um, you might say, well, no, that would be wrong because that would violate personality. People should be able to choose. You know, we've already seen that. Should be able to choose you know, how to understand leisure, how to understand friendship, and so on and so forth. But if you want to go down that road, then you cannot be, it seems to me, genuinely, thoroughgoingly committed to cultural pluralism particularly when you are faced with conflicts between, you know, on the one hand, the good of personality and, on the other hand, culturally different interpretations of the other parts and parcels of what makes a good life. To put the point differently, and I will finish with this, um, on page 151 you of the paperback edition, you insist that... Um, our philosophical intuitions on what basic goods are on what are the constituents of a good life should be, quote, guided by the testimony of different ages and cultures. Perhaps, but when, to repeat, you have a conflict between those different testimonies on the one hand and the importance of personality on the other hand, autonomy, as it was, would say, how on earth will you resolve that particular conflict? Thank you. So thank you again to, um, to Nigel for inviting us uh, to, to be at this um, colloquium today, and thank you to Robert and Edward for, um, for writing the book. So I'd like to begin in a similar vein to Cecile by um, saying how extremely sympathetic I am to the Skidelsky's basic analysis, in particular to their critique of the culture of unlimited growth and consumption, which characterises the political economy of liberal capitalism and to their recognition that such a critique must be ethical and perhaps, they hint once or twice, even theological. Supposedly natural limits are not enough. Neither economics nor politics can be purely rational, for they are always dependent upon specific cultures, particular visions of the good life, whether acknowledged or not. And I'm particularly sympathetic, I guess, to the way that you use Aristotelian virtue ethics, Catholic social teaching and distributivist uh, economic theories, amongst other sources, to raise these questions. I know that others are going to say more about this ethical theological critique of capitalism um, and how that relates to the liberal society. So um, <coughs> I'll leave others to do that and we'll focus instead on the analysis of the concepts of work and leisure that you use offering one or two theological comments on the ambiguity and mutual relationship of these terms. And in doing this, I'm attempting to extend the argument of um, Maurice Glassman, uh, which you acknowledge in, the, in section three of the preface to the paperback edition, and uh, which Edward mentioned in his comments uh, just a moment ago. <coughs> so my questions are briefly, what makes for good work... Is good work ultimately so different from purposive leisure, or is there more continuity here, as I think Edward uh, recognised in his comments just a moment ago? 
And if so, is there room for a larger place for good work in the good life than the Skidelskys at times seem to allow? And perhaps this also tells us something about how, about the means to get to um, the sort of future that they want. So then how much is enough begins from the Keynesian premise that work is essentially instrumental. We work in order to be at rest. And then goes on to ask the question why, given the increasing wealth which ought to prevent us from needing to work so much, we are not, in fact, working less. The Skidelskys consider three possible explanations. Because people enjoy working, or because they are compelled to, or because they want more and more. And in the book, they argue that the last of these three is the most important, although today, this morning, Robert has suggested that the second reason may, in fact, be just as crucial, along with technological uh, development. On the first point, though, pleasure in work, the Skidelskys recognise that some do find joy in their work. For some, work is, they say, no longer labour in the economist's sense, but a labour of love, a source of stimulation, identity, worth and sociability. Page 27 of the paperback edition. They recognise that for some, work has become, they say, less physically demanding, more interesting, challenging, innovative, while also the number of vocational jobs has expanded. But then they quickly move on to say that most people would still rather not work. So they say the curse of Adam may have lightened, but it has not entirely lifted. I'm sure that they're correct here to suggest that overworking is more a consequence of power relations and the unlimited desire to consume than of pleasure in work. Nevertheless, though, the very possibility of pleasure in work, and to put it less subjectively, of good work, is an important one, which deserves, I think, more attention. Because for the Skidelskys, work is usually something instrumental in its relation to the good life, they conclude that we need to work less in order to produce more balanced lives, and also to ensure that the security of employment is spread more widely, but ultimately to extend the benefits of the good life, understood as purposeful leisure, to more people. Work here, then, is understood as something essentially toilsome, alienating, to be reined in by remembering that it is not, in fact, an end in itself, but simply a means to the end of the good life. The good life, as a result, is the life of leisure. Work seems to have little place in this vision of the good life, and so needs to be reduced as much as possible. And I think I would be very sympathetic to this account of the priority of leisure over work and the need to defend and extend leisure against the culture of total work which capitalism generates. The Skidelskys acknowledge that Josef Pieper made a similar argument in the mid-20th century. But I also want to ask, and I think this is hopefully not just, an, as it were, a semantic quibble about the, the, the meaning of work in relation to leisure, what is the place for good work within the good life? For if work were really such a terrible thing, why would we not just rejoice at Robert's prophecy of the gradual redundancy of human beings as we are replaced by machines? The answer, I think, is partly that good work is something vital to being human. Good work, according to the sort of Christian tradition represented by John Paul II's Laborum Exercens, is good in terms of both its subjective and objective dimensions. Good in terms of the conditions of work for the worker, 
and good in contributing to society by doing things which are genuinely good. Such work is a fundamental expression of human dignity. And when we begin to consider what good work might mean, work that is not alienating, they say um, using Marx's categories, we find that it might well include such characteristics as being free, responsible, oriented towards genuinely good ends, and often at least, for these reasons, pleasurable in the deepest sense in its own right, even if not from moment to moment. In short, good work begins to look not so dissimilar to the Skidelsky's account of purposive leisure. The opposition, then, between work and leisure in terms of instrumentality and non-instrumentality certainly does make sense, it seems to me, in terms of toilsome work, alienating work. But it becomes increasingly inadequate, although not redundant, the more we look for the transformation of work to become less and less alienating, to become good work. These insights run deep within the Christian theological, uh, um, within Christian theological reflection on work and rest. So although the Christian tradition generally recognises a priority of rest over work, it also recognises that there can be good and bad work, just as there can be good and bad leisure, or idleness, as bad leisure is normally seen. So work is presented in the Old Testament as marked by the curse of toil and needing to be limited by the institution of the Sabbath, which recalls humanity to its true nature. Yet at the same time, for most of Christian thought, work is not purely a post-lapsarian, this-worldly human reality. Work can be godly, even divine. There was work in Eden, just as, according to Jesus in John's Gospel, he and the Father continue to be at work on the Sabbath. And the view of the Sabbath presented in the New Testament makes this point about the sort of convergence um, the, of, of work and leisure uh, more explicit. The Sabbath in the New Testament is neither simply a limit to work, as the Skidelskys seem to imply at one point uh, when, they, when they mention the Sabbath, nor is it simply abolished, as if now it means nothing in the New Covenant. Rather, the Sabbath in the New Testament is the transforming foretaste of the kingdom, of a different set of human relations, both as a limit to the necessary labour of subsistence and the sign of how that labour could be transformed. The Sabbath, then, is not just for rest in the sense of doing nothing, not just about stopping work. It is also for the sacred work of worship and of good deeds, which are to spill over and sanctify everyday work. And the, um, the Skidelsky's positive account of leisure is, I think, actually not so, not so far from this. For the righteous, or we might say for those seeking to lead the good life, the distinction between instrumental and non-instrumental activity seems to become less and less significant as work and leisure converge. And this convergence is regarded theologically as complete in the life of God himself, who is understood as being always at rest and yet always at work. To put it in those terms makes another important point, that such a total convergence would in fact be impossible for us in this life. Our human labour will always include elements of toil, which is precisely why we continue to need the diurnal variations of work and rest. 
you know, even the most virtuous and um, pleasurable work you couldn't do all the time. To think otherwise would be a foolhardy utopianism. Yet this ultimate convergence, this idea of the ultimate unity of work and rest in God, provides an horizon by which we can distinguish more or less alienating forms of work. If this all sounds um, far too theological, it seems to me it's not just a Christian perspective. For in the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1848, Marx describes a vision of the unalienated society in which work and leisure have become largely indistinguishable. He talks about writing essays in the evening and going out hunting in the afternoon, and so on. And William Morris echoes this vision in his utopian narrative of the future in News from Nowhere a society in which people work and do the things they have to do and enjoy it and also take pleasure in doing extra things that are generally good and use- genuinely good and useful. Morris's medievalist vision of the future here draws not only upon Marx, but also upon Ruskin's account of the craftsman as the ideal form of the labourer, which he also compares to, uh, to professionals, so the teacher, the lawyer, the clergyman, the person who should work because they believe in the ends for which they are working rather than simply for a profit motive. And it also relates, of course, to Carlyle's account of the sanctity of work, work as something that is godly and holy. In all these visions, which um, come with their own particular dangers of romanticising and idealising labour, in all these visions people do not simply work because they have to, nor because they want to consume more, nor because it... Sorry, but because it is good to work, and work can be good. The distinction here between intrinsically motivated and extrinsically motivated works seems to be, at the least, breaking down. And in fact, many forms of everyday work already complicate this distinction. We might think here both of those forms of paid work which are understood as vocational so that people would carry on doing them even if they received a basic income and so didn't need the money. And I guess uh, many academics and um, clergy and others would uh, put themselves in that category. But we might also think of the various forms of labour which are generally not rewarded economically except perhaps through social recognition, uh, so honour, or occasionally via statutory payments such as those who spend their time raising children or caring for loved ones. And uh, Edward mentioned this to some extent uh, just uh, earlier in his comments. At one point in How Much is Enough, the Skidelskys do seem to hope that this sort of good work might increase in a future society which had learned how much is enough. They write on page 216 of the paperback edition, as the satisfactions of the old Adam decline, one might expect them to be replaced by many kinds of ambition which come into our domain of leisure. Even today, more and more people find a natural outlet for their generous and adventurous instincts in voluntary service at home and abroad. They are leading the good life and pointing others to it. In the preface to the paperback edition, they accept that the work of teachers, social workers, charitable workers and others don't fit comfortably into our work-leisure scheme because they are neither purely instrumental nor simply ends in themselves. And they respond that the scheme works despite these exceptions. I'd like to suggest instead, then, 
that, in fact, as they suggested in that passage just a moment ago, these exceptions are more important to the scheme as a whole in pointing towards the possible ultimate convergence of work and leisure, utility and beauty in the good life. Perhaps there is also a point here, uh, with which I'd like to end, about how we might get closer to this good life. Not simply by restricting the logic of the market by state legislation, important though that is, but also by growing and encouraging the cultures of virtue which already exist in civil society, so that capital and labour are, as it were, ever more and more entangled in them. Thank you, Cecile, for those um, very sharp um, comments, um, which I'll try to respond to uh, as best I can. So you're quite right that um, our definition of the basic goods, which collectively form the good life, is intended to be open-ended and non-specific. Um, it's intended to give due scope to individual choice and preference. Um, but it is also intended to rule out certain outcomes. Otherwise, it would be completely vacuous. Um, and I think this does distinguish it from uh, Senator Nussbaum's capabilities approach, um, which focuses purely on, on um, yeah, capabilities uh, rather than actual functionings. So as long as um, you know, the capabilities are, are open to individuals, whether, whether they actually... Um, uh, fulfill these capabilities is that's a matter of private choice and the state shouldn't take a view on that so um, uh, Nussbaum says uh, we, we quote her in the book um, yeah, where, where adult citizens are concerned capability not functioning is the appropriate political goal and then she adds um, yeah. yeah a person who has opportunities for play can always choose a workaholic life um, so that's not a, something that the state should, should uh, have a view on. Um, as long as there are opportunities for play, if someone chooses not to uh, you know, act on those opportunities, that's fine. Okay? And to, um, to think otherwise would be to, to be dictatorial about the good, as she puts it. Now, I think here we differ from her. Um, we think that uh, you know, a workaholic life is, is objectively worse than, than a non-workaholic life, and that the state has a role to play in encouraging us in, in one direction rather than the other um, through you know, the various policy recommendations that we, we list at the end of the book. Um, Including basic income. Yes. Um, so, um, so I think, I think there, is a, there is a real difference between us and Sen uh, and Nussbaum. Um, or at least Nussbaum, I'm not sure about Sen. Um, I think his position is a bit more complex. Um, yeah, on the question of autonomy... Um, I think many liberals have a, have a certain conception of autonomy as implying um, complete equality of formal liberties in a state that's neutral between varying conceptions of the good. Um, so if the state uh, has a, you know, uh, if, there, if there's a public preference for, for, for a particular conception of the good that I don't share, my autonomy is thereby violated. Um, um, and, and that's not our conception of autonomy. Um, I mean, I think um, it would be quite misleading to say that um, 
Uh, well, let's let's say I go to a, I go to a country which doesn't share my particular religious faith, um, and there are public ceremonies. Um, let's say Hindu or Buddhist public ceremonies. Um, uh, I don't think my autonomy is violated uh, by the existence of these public ceremonies, so long as you know, I'm not forced to take part in them, so long as they're you know, opt-outs. Um, I, I suppose I could be describing England. Um, uh, so I, I think what one has to draw a distinction, which is, which is often overlooked now, between um, neutrality and tolerance. Um, and the liberal ideal, the traditional liberal ideal, was one of tolerance. Um, so you had certain public doctrines, um, but you tolerated those who differed, uh, you know, minorities. Um, uh, I mean, well, personal autonomy wasn't interpreted so as to imply complete neutrality on the part of the state. Um, so uh, that, that's, that's how we interpret autonomy or personality. Um, um, so I, I hope that um, goes some way to the <coughs> Can I come back? Or... Uh, um... Yes, we'll, we'll, uh, yeah, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to be very brief. Um, thank you, that's helpful. Um, I do take your point. Um, I, I overreached um, in one respect. So it is true that um, Nussbaum and others would disagree with you um, with the example of leisure versus workaholism. I think you're absolutely right about this. But here's another example where it seems to me that your approach is closer to capabilities than to functioning. So for those of you who are not you know, very familiar with that literature, which by now has become quite technical, um, in fact. So functioning is a state of being. So, so being well-nourished, for example, is a functioning. Okay? Um, capabilities um, are opportunities to achieve that particular you know, functioning. Now, take the example of a fasting monk. That particular individual decides that he's not going to be well nourished. And he decides, he makes that decision by appealing to certain beliefs you know, that he has and so on and so forth. Now, it seems to me that you could not deny you know, what you say about the good life. And again, it's a strength of your account, don't get me wrong. But it seems to me that you could not deny that there is a crucially important sense in which that fasting monk who does not, is not going to have, enjoy the functioning of being well-nourished, is nevertheless having a good life, you know, subject to the conditions that you also you know, set out you know, in the book. Um, so so I, I do take your point um, you know, that there are some outcomes that you recommend that they <coughs> wouldn't be so happy recommending, but I don't think that the difference between and again, it's a strength of the book, in my view. I don't think the difference between them and you um, is as sharp as you say. Um, and in fact, in a similar vein, you have interesting things to say about you know, neutrality in the book. But you know, liberals don't say that the state should be absolutely neutral between conceptions you know, of the good. In fact, they don't say that agents are, quote, free to follow their own moral lights. Um, there is a very strong sense in which, for the liberals, the sophisticated liberals I have in mind, it's entirely appropriate you know, for the state to step in, to interfere with agents' freedom when agents 
impinge on the rights you know, of others. And that can very clearly rule out state tolerance of practices which we you know, allude to in the book, um, uh, such as uh, necrophilia. You know, for example, or even you know, neo-Nazis. There is a very rich you know, liberal literature on the extent to which you know, we can condemn as liberals in you know, certain instances of free speech, <coughs> such as you know, free neo-Nazi you know, speech. Um, now, with respect to basic income, um, you see, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm a great fan of basic income. Um, I, I thought that this argument in the book was you know, really you know, spot on. But if you look at you know, arguments by Rawls, Sanders, Baum, and so on, they all say, actually, although they don't use the word you know, basic income, they all say that every single person should enjoy a minimum level of resources such as to not fall below you know, a certain threshold. I mean, you know, Rawls in political liberalism in particular you know, speaks of it as a social you know, minimum. And Nussbaum and Sen, of course, you know, in particular, do you know, have important you know, things to say um, about that as well. And so, again, um, it, although they don't emphasize unconditionality as strongly as you do, and I think it's a failing on their part in the strength of your account, it seems to me that, again, when it comes to working out what it is that the state should do, you, know, you won't end up that far apart, you know, it seems to me. Um, what I think you do better, what I think you do better is, you know, you clearly say um, everyone should have it, that amount, you know, of income, um, precisely so that they can pursue, you know, a life, you know, which is a good life, where good is an odd, awkward mixture of subjective and preferences and objective, you know, goods. I think I'd That's what we do, sir. Yeah, I know that's the strength yeah. of your account. I, I mean, um, I, I, th- I think I think one of the one of the um, um, one of the uh, things we one of our cr- critiques of liberalism um, is that um, their interventions tend to be arbitrary. I mean, in other words, they say we don't like you to we don't like intervention in these areas, um, but it's all right um, to intervene in other areas. And then you ask, well, what are the criteria? And uh, it's some version of harm, or it's some version of equal everyone having equal rights. And as soon as you pursue that, they they're not nearly as clear um, as as they appear at first sight. I mean, the notion of harm, for example. Um, anyway, I, I didn't I didn't want to because I I, I, I just have another one other we can we can we can talk about that. This is this is really um, a reply to John. And I start you know on on the on the idea that. Leisure and work can converge um, uh, through further developments um, in, in, in work. I start from uh, an Adam Smith quotation, which, which we give on page 52. Um, the man whose whole life is spent in performing a few simple operations, of which the effects are perhaps always the same or very nearly the same, has no occasion to exert his understanding or to exercise his invention. He naturally loses, therefore, the habits of such exertion and generally becomes as stupid and ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become. And then there's a lot more about what happens in, his, in the pin factory. Now, the, the point is that more and more work is of that character, actually. I mean, that is the human, human conveyor belt. And I... I don't see a convergence. I mean, of course it's true that work has become less physically toilsome, but it's also become in many ways more mind-destroying. 
I mean, I think pre-industrial -revolu pre revolution work was physically extremely toilsome, but at the same time, it, it, it also gave certain freedoms of, 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 of time and when to work, and, 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 um, uh, and, and allowed the deployment of skills and, and, and the passing down of skills from, from parents to children and so on. So I don't see how out of this increasingly routinized and computer-driven work scripted work, if you like, um, you're going to get good work, in, in, enough good work. Now, what, what, I, I don't see the transition quite from that. I can see the transition to leisure more easily, and then out of leisure one might develop all kinds of good work, uh, uh, good types of work, that I can see. But um, in terms of good jobs, I don't quite see um, uh, that there are going to be enough of them. Yes, I, I mean, perhaps I um, didn't um, make that um, quite clear, but I, I think I agree with you that it's not, it's not, as it were, an emergent trend. It won't simply happen um, through any natural progression. Um, and that's one of the things I thought was uh, very helpful about your book, that, it, that those sorts of transformations to, to a good life, including good work, um, are ethical ones. Um, they, are, they involve um, uh, decisions about how we order our... Um, our life together. They're ethical and political in that sense. And so I, I don't think I agree that they're not, it's not just going to, to, um, to emerge. I suppose um, what I was sort of trying to hint towards at the end, um, which is picking up some of the comments that, um, that Glass, Morris Glassman's made elsewhere, is the idea that um, if there are um, forms of human um, labour and work that are, as it were, more rewarding and more um, virtuous or good in some sense, the, these, the extension of those qualities to other forms of labour can be encouraged um, socially and politically. It won't simply happen, as it were, by, um, by, by the profit motive or by um, economic laws, but um, I think by, by um, social and political um, uh, decision, in a sense, um, these things are... are Possible. Would you want to slow down technology hmm. uh, and take measures like uh, our tax on robots, just suggested this morning, in order to? <coughs> um, I think it may well be about about it, about the decisions as to what technology is being used for, as, but which may include slowing it down. Um, but I think there's always a question. I mean, the sim only if you think that that things have to operate according to the. Um, to the laws of profit, will 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 you will the only solution be to slow technology down? If that makes sense. Um, um, I can see from the, the intentness of the audience that you're enjoying this conversation up front, but I, I'd like to have the conversation disseminate down the rest of the hall. First of all, can I just give the opportunity to uh, those who will speak later? to make points relevant to this discussion that we're not preeminently going to see later. So, <coughs> and then Ed. Well, you said very briefly that, even better, thank you. You said very briefly that your concerns about consumerism, uh, that, that is driven by relative consumption and preferences for being at least as well off as others. Uh, 
What it, but you, and Cecile made very clear, you talk about the importance of autonomy. What if you tax a person with the charge that they're driving uh, a, a mindlessly expensive car simply to show off? And uh, he replies, my autonomy is important to me. This is what I choose. What is the basis on which you line up to say, uh, well, yes, but, and but involves pushing, nudging, social policy. John, you described uh, influencing. So can I just be clear? Are you asking... On what grounds could we possibly reject a tax, a super tax on Ferraris, for example? I'm putting it the other way. Well, on what basis could we no, that's justify, good. That's good. That's good. justify a tax? Uh, we, we declare this to be mindless consumption, which we uh, somehow prefer. Who's we and why prefer when it would overrule autonomy? <laughs> I, do you want me to apply that in We could take the other questions. Would you approve of that? I mean, the very, 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 very uh, um, one-line answer is that we justify progressive taxes for all kinds of reasons. Um, and one of them could be to diminish um, the, the cascade of consumption that comes from, um, from um, luxury consumption at the top. This is Robert Frank's argument. Um, so, I mean... It's part of a general argument. Why, how could one justify any form of um, progressive taxation, that is, taxation beyond um, uh, the requirements of the state to fulfil the public goods for every, every, every person, um, uh, minimum, minimum public goods? How can we justify that? We have to introduce a social argument. It's just bad that um, people should, um, should um, uh, have unlimited, um, unlimited tax-free incomes to spend on these things. I mean, I can't go beyond that. Also, we have a more substantive definition of autonomy and uh, functionality. I mean, we don't identify it simply with market freedom. Um, so the, the person who buys the more expensive Ferrari to, to show off is it, not, I'm arguing, making a fully autonomous choice. I mean, so very socially determined one. Um, yeah. Socially shaped. Thank you. Um, among a, a number of issues I'd, I'd like to raise, can I, can I just flag up two? One of which I'm reasonably clear about, and the other I'm not. Um, the first is about the robot tax notion, and simply a, a structure for thinking about it. Um, thinking about a, a rationale for it, which is simply this. If one's talking about the um, enhancement of technological capacity in a way that brings social and personal cost, then there's quite clearly a rationale straight away for seeing a tax on that procedure as a way of meeting a cost that arises. And I think there's, there's a, a very simple justification for <coughs> that, in a sense, which is one reason why I to support the notion of some kind of... Um, some kind of taxation on political sorts of technological enhancement. My second point about which I'm not so clear is really going back to Cecile's business about the, um, the way that cultural pluralism might commit you to paternalism, as, as I heard the argument. And this, this takes me to 
that is which, which much preoccupies me. I think that one of the great achievements of the liberal project, so to speak, is to create and consolidate a sense of the civic identity as something universally accessible. In other words, there are protections and issues of status which no one can take away from you, never mind your affiliations, never mind your communal identity. There is something which cannot be removed from you. The um, weakness of some kinds of liberal projects is to say, that's the identity that really matters and nothing else does. Now it seems to me that one can reasonably say that the civic identity, the universal legal protection, remains as if like the bottom line here, but that, that is perfectly compatible with the, um, the recognition of cultural diversity, with the um, acceptance of different options, so long as those different options do not definitively remove somebody from the exercise of the, from, yeah, access mm -hmm. to their civic rights. So that, in a nutshell, um, legal protection of the civic identity don't necessarily mean cultural endorsement. And in that sense, I'm not sure that pluralism necessarily commits you to the sort of paternalism you sketch, which I, whose ambiguity I do, I do recognize. Um, if I may, um, this this is um, this is very important and very difficult and you know, very delicate. So, and I didn't articulate my point very clearly earlier on, which I think adds to the um, to the difficulty. My worry was that um, deference to cultural pluralism coupled with as broad-minded a conception of the good life as the Skidelsians endorse would make it very difficult for them to reject paternalistic interference in people's life as advocated by different cultures. Um, you know, for the sake of ensuring that people lead a good life when the good life is consists in an interpretation of the seven goods that they list in the light of that culture's you know, central beliefs. That was my worry. I hope that's, that's a bit clearer to my own ears. I hope that's a bit clearer. You think we're potentially people. inconsistent? So, and, and I do have a worry um, about inconsistency. Um, I mean, I think you know, it's a worry that any <coughs> it's a worry that any non-fanatic liberal should have. I mean, you know, you're not alone. You know, in this, and I should have made that clearer as well. Can I pick on something? Um, I think really important that you said. So I, I don't think of the liberal project um, as necessarily committing itself to the view that civic identity, as you described it, is all that matters for the state. So I, I, I mean, I think you know there is a richer account of liberalism where we should be concerned not just with the question of when the state may interfere in people's lives, but how should the state allocate the social wealth at its disposal? And this is perhaps where there is a sharper disagreement between you two on the one hand and the people like me you know, on the other hand. Um, so, um, I mean, I always hesitate to say this in the presence of the former Archbishop of Canterbury, but I'm firmly committed to a disestablished church. Being French, that shouldn't surprise you. 
you know, too much, um, you know, radical, you know, reconversion, you know, to undergo, you know, from that particular, you know, culture. But the point here is this. Well, you mentioned the example earlier of certain religious you know, ceremonies you know, being funded in another culture. And the question is whether someone who doesn't share those religious beliefs you know, can have a complaint. You know, that. And I do think that they can. So, so the view, more precisely, is this. I think it's central to the debate project to um, accept or to say that decisions to allocate social wealth to those particular understandings of the good rather than others should not be made on the basis that those understandings are inherently more worthwhile you know, than others. That, it seems to me, you know, is key to some important strands you know, within you know, liberalism. So that I find it, well, you mentioned the French you know, very sharply critically you know, in the book. You, know, you say, right, actually, that they are not neutral in the treatment of some religious in the minorities, in the particularly in the Muslims, I think you're right, your criticism is very well taken. I would disagree you know, with French law you know, on that particular account. Equally, uh, I, I would find it objectionable if a state, what you say, we are going to repair churches of this particular denomination, but not that particular denomination, because we believe you know, that you know, the former is a, is a truer reflection of what God you know, teaches us. <coughs> You know, than the latter. But I the, might the, just point out that the state doesn't do that. No, I know it does with us. I mean, it, you know, it, yes. in my country, it does. So, so, so my criticism is not criticism of England. Um, you know, it's an entirely self directed you know, criticism. Um, there is one final thing I want to say, and I don't want to you know, talk too much. Um, but, I mean, you know. Liberals are concerned with, primarily it seems to me, with the power of the state, with constraining and justifying the power of the state. I mean, a liberal or poor liberal can have very strong views as to what is a good life, but that's a separate question you know, for what it is that the state may and must do. And I think it's unfair you know, to characterize liberals as not having anything to say at all you know, about what is a good life. That is not, you know, what their concern primarily, you know, is. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Uh, um, <coughs> uh, two questions, one from Ed and then from John. And, and I do think we need to allow the rest of the audience to participate in this. So uh -huh. uh, can we take Ed and John's question together, then have a brief response from whoever's addressed? This is really addressed to John and Ed, and it's really about comments about boredom and, and work. There are situations where um, local economies, in particular, where there's a sort of enforced uh, um, patterns of seasonality on work and enforced patterns of leisure. I was thinking, I grew up in a rural community in, on Exmoor in the 60s and 70s, highly seasonal, dependent on, on tourism uh, for a very short period. And for most of the year, a lot of the year, a lot of people were not, not working. And what was, what was clear in that context were a lot of very vibrant community groups uh, emerged, remarkably so. Um, sports groups in particular. Um, our local cricket team managed to beat the Devon uh, county side, which to match the amazement of it from a you know, video of a thousand people. Very strong chess team. Our local village team would uh, beat Exeter. Sorry, but it's true. Uh, but there was a lot of time spent on community activity, very vibrant. And it came out of the context of that. But there were also the negative sides. There were, I think, about eight pubs, lots of alcoholism, um, quite a lot of youth crime as well. So responses to that were setting, setting up boxing clubs and other activities to get, you know, get, let 
boys get their testosterone out smashing each other in the boxing club rather on the street. But I'm wondering, is there much research, empirical research being done in these sorts of situations? Because there, when you um, look at uh, reports on quality of life, often it's, it's in remote rural communities, places like Orkney, which you might think is unusual, where people say actually they find their life most fulfilling. But I'm presuming there's that degree of seasonality between um, uh, work and leisure there, where people are forced to think seriously about how they use leisure, for not just for the odd... Uh, hour here and there, but you know, for literally for months on, 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 on a go. Excuse me, hold on for I, um, thank you. I wanted to, uh, to ask a question really to support the book and the analysis in the book over the most recent thinking on inequality. I, I, I think the book actually um, might be safer. The inequality issue that, that you raised was that incomes have been diverging because of technology. Technology is accelerating and that income divergence is likely to increase. And that's certainly true. And the implication was that you essentially alluded to was that the rich can afford to work less, but the poor cannot. However, the rich do not work less. The, the hours worked amongst very high-paying occupations, in banking, senior management, uh, across the whole swathes of the industrialised world, they, they may be able to afford to, but they are subject to the criticisms which you so eloquently outline in your book, the positional goods, the desire perhaps for more. So um, I think that answering the question of why people do not work less applies just as much to those who are increasingly wealthy. And your basic income, if one did it, would uh, essentially be redistributive as, as all your policy proposals essentially are. So. So I actually thought your book was the deeper analysis rather than the, the, the inequality that followed it. Can I just say something um, in response to, to Ed's um, question? I don't, I don't, I'm afraid, know about the, the empirical um, studies of these sorts of communities, but I guess I think, um, as, actually, as your example hinted in a way, it can't just be the case that, as it were, um, by pulling back... Uh, employment or by having res more restricted employment, um, good leisure simply um, flourishes. And I thought that was one of the um, uh, attractive and helpful things, again, about the Skidelsky's book, this sense of the need for an education um, uh, for leisure, in that um, declining employment or, or more vulnerable patterns of employment can both generate opportunities for um, for um, good leisure, as it were, but also for idleness and um, and dissolution and, um, and sort of community decay as well. And perhaps there's a bigger point there about the role of security, which they also touch upon, um, which I guess relates to that sort of contrast between broadly more sort of static traditional communities and more um, mobile and, um, and uh, fluid ones. And there are clearly moral... Um, uh, opportunities and risks with both situations, and we can all think of sort of um, also having grown up in a um, West Country village. You know the uh, the potential for um, for those type of communities to be sort of oppressive and totalising in a way that uh, that restricts personality, uh, but also um, you know as was broadly my experience, places where where one can sort of have the freedom and security to flourish and uh, and so on. So, Um, yeah, I think it's a good question, good comment, I should say, um, and I, I'm torn between um, which to, to which to attach, um, uh, which analysis uh, deserves the priority. Um, 
I do think you, you probably uh, need to make a distinction between the secure rich and the insecure rich. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the very rich people today are first generation, second generation rich, uh, first generation in many, in, in, certainly in financial services, a lot of them. And their wealth is here today, gone tomorrow. tomorrow. So they, they have an anxiety about, um, about uh, the security of their wealth, which um, uh, can make them work uh, quite hard. Also, um, I mean, yes, I think, I think that that is true. Uh, that, that there's an incentive in them to go on work, to just get, get, get their position that more secure, irrespective, about, about, uh, irrespective of their conspicuous consumption. Um, and um, you, can, you can see this in, in many, many films now, I mean, about the, the behavior of people. <laughs> Um, in, 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 in the financial services. And of course they do, they do work very, very hard. Um, but, but the point is it's not, it's not, it's not solid. Their, their wealth isn't solid enough um, for them to take a, a more insouciant view uh, of leisure, which I think was, was, was possible for the older aristocracies. Okay, just two quick points. One about autonomy, the other about leisure. Um, on the example of the monk, um, the fasting monk, it's an interesting one. I, I would say if the monk's fasting was really damaging his health, as, as the example seemed to suggest, then that, I would say he wasn't living a good life, e even if the decision to fast was an autonomous one. So this, this would be an example of autonomy uh, overstepping its uh, boundaries, um, because it's actually impinging on another basic good, which is, which is mm, health. Good. Yeah. And which is not to say, of course, it, it should be prohibited, but, but perhaps discouraged. And I, and I believe in, I mean, Christian aesthetic practices are not meant to be damaging to health um, mm. in this way. Um, on leisure, um, I mean, what, one of the things that would disappear in the transition from work to leisure, as we define it, is the element of necessity. Um, the sense this is something I have to do. Um, and we think of that in the book as a gain. One could see it as a loss. Um, perhaps we'll be overcome by a sense of, uh, I, I don't know, you know, what Milan could call the unbearable likeness of being in this workless future, where uh, we don't have to do anything, but we could do any, everything. Um, and so maybe in place of economic necessity, some sense of moral necessity uh, will become increasingly important. Some sense that you know, these are things that I morally must do um, uh, to serve others. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, the place of, uh, of necessity is not something we really thought through in the book. Um, 